Hello everyone and welcome to another fantastic, exhilarating, interesting and quite fishy episode of the Madams Cast. We've had lots of uh, recent cooks on, some interesting producers of wonderful foods. We've had uh, cooks, we've had all sorts of people, authors, the whole lot. But we haven't had enough farmers or farming organisations represented. And I have to say, I'm very excited about today because today I'm speaking to Oliver Robinson from British Trout. Oliver, are you there? Yes. Good morning, Tim. Hello. Hello. Now, Oliver, I'm... I'm trying to describe you as a farmer. Is that accurate or inaccurate? Yes, I'm. I, I'm. I represent the British Trout Association, run the British Trout Association, but I also trout farm as well. I have done for uh, forty-four years. Okay, so hang on, forty-four years. Will that take us to nineteen seventy something? Yes, seventy-seven. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Now, I um, I have done a tiny bit of research into uh, into fish farming. Uh, in in the depths of history, because I think it's it's quite an interesting thing, and I'm gonna I'm just gonna whiz through that to bring everyone up to modern day, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump back to you to find out what's going on now. So, listeners, if you're interested, roughly six point five thousand years ago, Aboriginal people in Australia were farming eels, or at least ranching them. Four thousand years ago in China carp were being farmed the romans brought fish farming over to the uk um they were famous for farming oysters as well as other things and then through the middle ages uh monastic settlements in the uk were doing all sorts of uh aquaculture as part of their survival you know feeding sort of vegetarian fish and bits and pieces um then there's a bit of a break, <laughs> it seems, until the 1950s, when apparently, according, I think, to your website, Oliver, um, fish farming using trout started here in the UK. Yes. Um, well, the trout farming started um, back in the 1950s, really, um, for restocking rivers. That's how it, how it all started. And then in the uh, sort of very late 60s, a few fish were produced for the table, and the 70s it really got going. You ended up with a, an amazing product that was produced on land and available um, seven days a week, which was a very unusual situation then. Um, when obviously all sea fish, if you have storms at sea, um, its so, so supply system was not very reliable. So we could produce a, uh, a, a trout fish that was available to anybody. Brilliant. Fascinating. Okay, now in the 1970s, aquaculture was sort of heralded as the new dawn of, um, of sort of food security, if you like. Now, it's based on a very sensible theory, isn't it? Which is that a fish is a cold-blooded animal. And let's say you're trying to farm a chicken or a cow or something. Those are warm-blooded animals and they use a lot of energy keeping warm. Whereas a cold-blooded animal converts a greater percentage of its feed into, uh, into meat because it's not wasting its time keeping warm. Now, that sounds like a great sales pitch. I mean, is that is that true? Is that sort of in actual fact what happens? Well, yeah, I, I think it's a little bit of that. Um, yes, I mean, they're, they're a very good converter of, 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 of food um, in to, to fish out. So, yes, they are, because they haven't got quite so much to keep going. Um, yeah, it's a very efficient way of growing uh, protein, if you like. Food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting, interesting. So how did you end up doing it, Oliver? Because the Madam's Cast is all about the people that do stuff. And so I'm interested to find out how you end up being a trout farmer. That's And then, in fact, setting up an organisation or an association to help uh, improve the standards of trout farming, as I understand it, and to market that to a wider audience. Well, I just started. It was something I always fished, and, and it was something I loved fish. And I happened to want a job um, in sort of 76, 77. Very difficult to get into fish farming then. And I literally went around fish farms, knocked on the doors, and I ended up knocking on the door of a chap called Chris Saunders Davis, Tess Valley Trout. He had just started, actually, in 74. Went through the 76 summer, nearly wiped him out, but he was he was okay because of sort of low, very high temperatures and low rainfall and low flows in the river okay. uh, during 76. Kept through that. And then we built... The businesses from there, the industry has grown. And then um, about 30 plus years ago, the British Trout Association was formed by um, a selection of producers, really, to represent us um, in government, um, legislation, uh, promoting, generically promoting trout, um, and sort of research and R&D. And it's, it's developed into what it is now, which is... Uh, quite a big picture really brilliant and for um the problem i have always is that obviously i've done some research and i know a little bit about fish farming not a huge amount i'm a sort of observer rather than an expert definitely and so could you just give us a sort of uh, a beginner's kind of guide a sort of uh, just break it down into a few steps how does it work um just briefly run us through the process of of rearing a trout and tell us what species of trout they are and where they come from yeah well we have we the main species of trout there are various grown, various sorts of trout grown. The main species for uh, food um, is rainbow trout, because that, it's not native to here, but it's come from the southern hemisphere. They grow very well. Um, so that's our food producing one. And then we have a restocking sector as well, and that produces trout for restocking rivers and fisheries for people to go fishing. There's big, re, big resurgence with that with COVID, which is... Um, good news to get people out so that's the brown trout and they have the arctic char and various crosses of brown trout and rainbow trout for fishing but the main production is for food production and that would be a rainbow trout you start with a female trout and a male trout um, put the eggs together and from there you're going to be as an egg for about four months and that will then come out as a, a little swim up fry there are specific sites or hatcheries in the UK that specialize in that side and from there they go on to growing on farms that's about five grams and approximately um, nine months later you could end up with a 500 gram fish and then we also do a lot of three kilo fish which takes 24 months to produce and that's all in fresh water um, in England and Wales and there's a lot of marine production in Scotland as well in uh, pens that's very interesting so um okay that's interesting so i know that the native brown trout is the same as a sea trout or a slob trout because it either decides to go off to sea or it stays in the river it's a clever sort of evolutionary process uh, to protect it from uh, from you know failing years of breeding right um does that work then for, for rainbow trout can they live in the sea as well sounds like they can yeah rainbow trout i must say they one thing I need to point out is they don't breed in this country. They don't breed in the wild. 
so they're actually a, a very good farm fish to be producing because um, they don't breed and interfere with any wild stock, which is an important part for everybody. Um, in terms of, yes, they can be put into the sea. They go into the sea about uh, 200, 300 grams, um, and then are reared through for about 18 months from there. Okay, interesting. Now, I'm, I'm going to give you an opportunity here because I've always understood, um, perhaps wrongly, that farming fish in cages in the sea can be environmentally dangerous, whereas farming them sort of inland uh, can, can be a much safer process. Is that, is that something that you would sort of agree with or is that something that you would say is, is a fallacy? Well, I, I agree. I, I mean, I, I would think that given the technology and the advances in, in aquaculture in the sea, um, particularly for the trout farming, um, yes, they've been very successful. In terms of trout in the sea, they don't, they're very much, much hardier than various other species that are farmed in the sea. They don't have as much of a sea lice problem and therefore less issues on health sides as well. In terms of actually environmentally farming in the sea, providing um, you are compliant with the, the regulations and your license and keep within that and are very, very careful and respectful of the environment one is in, um, then it's a fairly sort of harmless activity. Yeah, freshwater flow through sites are very good because you're land-based, um, you can take the um, farm waste out and that can be uh, dug out from ponds and also used as a fertilizer on the um, on the ground as well so that long term that's probably some of the routes it will go but uh, it's a very clean act generally aquaculture um, particularly the rainbow trout farming is a very clean way of, of food producing okay so rainbow trout production in the uk very clean and um, a, 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 a relatively efficient source of protein in terms of changing from food to, to meat. Totally get that. Um, sustainability is a word that's bandied around a lot these days. Um, and I'm not always sure that it's bandied around by people who understand what it is. Um, but have you got any points on sustainability for trout farming? I mean, I know you mentioned that rainbow trout earlier sort of don't breed in this country and therefore they don't have an impact on the wild population. But I seem to remember a, a bit of a disaster a few years ago when there was some flooding in the X Valley and a whole load of rainbow trout got out into the X River. And the concern there was that they were going to eat all of the salmon smolts from an already struggling wild population of salmon and down there. Now, obviously, you won't know the specifics of that case, or maybe you do, but I just wondered sort of what measures are in place to make sure that these brilliantly farmed trout can't sort of suddenly get out. And although they're not causing problems in terms of pollution because it's being dug out and used as, as uh, fertilizer, as you say, what's there to stop them sort of breaking free into the wild and, and you know, competing for food against native species? Well, I agree. There has been some, some probably some fair criticism over the years of what we would determine as escapees from uh, farms. I mean, you have that in, in the sea as well. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly, in terms of the freshwater side, we have very high standards now. We have a good code of practice, um, generally through BTA, for all our members, and that's restocking and food producing. And we also, in terms of the food producing side, we have quality trout, global cap, freedom foods. And we're audited, those who are in the production side are audited by supermarkets as well, they're individual 
schemes. Within that, there's a very, very strict criteria from environmental agency and also CEPA in Scotland about scapees, screening on farms, steel screens to stop any fish ingress of wild stocks and any escapees of fish. That's improved immensely over the last probably 15 years. And I think people are very, very conscious of the issues. Um, and certainly in terms of the West Country, yes, that was a problem. The screening on the farms, etc., has been improved considerably down there. And the EA is are keeping a BDI on it. Mm, I bet they are. I bet they are. Oh, brilliant. Well, that's that's all really, really interesting stuff, actually. And I heard I heard I had a conversation once because I I was having a chat about um, about fish farming in general and it was a long time ago now but I was involved with a campaign called the fish fight when I was working at River Cottage with Hugh Fernley Whittingstall and we had a sort of long meeting one day I remember about fish farming and we were trying to work out what we thought and then there was a sort of story that that we sort of got to a narrative which was that fish farming was great in certain ways but we were really concerned about the use of um, fish meal uh, wild caught fish that's dried and turned into a part of the feed for fish as well as for for pigs and some chicken feed because it's high in amino acids which are vital for development of young animals um and we sort of got to the point where we thought well it's if you're gonna have farmed fish they need to be fed on on fish meal that's created from fish waste from processing factories or they need to be vegetarian fish and i think there was a guy who set up an inland tilapia farm in Dorset at some point. I, can't, I might be making that up. It might not have been Dorset, but I think that was happening. And then that stopped happening. And there were all sorts of um, bumps in the road in terms of vegetarian fish. Now I noticed from my sort of brief research into sort of the history of aquaculture, that most of these fish species, carp and whatnot, are either omnivorous or herbivorous sort of fish. So can you just talk a, a very briefly before we leap into the main part of the Madam's cast about what you'd like to change in the world of food? Could you talk just a little bit briefly about um, how the feed is derived for fish? Because there's a big vegan movement these days and a lot of that's confused. Um, and I don't think it's as simple as don't eat meat, grow crops for humans, don't feed crops to animals. I don't, I don't think that necessarily works depending on the farm, depending on the land, the landscape and what you're trying to grow. But... I'd be fascinated to know what you feed the trout and where it comes from. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very valid point. And I think, you know, wonderful to have the chance to clarify it. I think I would start, firstly, with the efficiency of the animal we're farming. A trout will convert it approximately one to one. So one tonne of food in to one tonne of trout out, or maybe slightly better than that. To put it into context, a pig... Um, or sheep will go somewhere in the region of three to one. A cow is somewhere in, where, somewhere in the region of four, between four and ten to one. Um, mm -hmm. And chickens are two point, roughly two point five. So there are yeah. fish are very, very efficient converters. In terms of the food, forty years ago, or forty-four years ago, when we all started in the eighties and seventies. There was about four kilos of, more, of, of marine raw materials to produce one kilo of trout. So a very high percentage of marine product in the food. We now yep. have moved on, and certainly in the last few years, you're talking about fishing fish out ratio on this, and we're actually of less than 
one tonne of more raw material, marine more material in the food, produce one tonne of trout. The reason for this is that we're about down to about 12% inclusion rate of marine products in the diets. The rest is all sorts of um, micro-balanced diets um, in the foods, and that, is, that has enabled us to decrease the amount. So we're a very efficient. We're actually, the best way of putting it is we're net producers of fish, which is a real big story. Now that's, that's been a huge development in the last five years. Um, there'd be an argument there to say that maybe those um, fish meal species would be better eaten directly. I mean, um, you know, sand eels, um, art, um, blue whiting, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, if, why can't we just fish those out and eat them? Well, I, th I think on, on that side, it's a very valid point, and we've been asked many times. Basically, you, you, you wouldn't get, trying to get that and process the fish and being able to use them, into a form that we can we can eat is fairly difficult to do. Producing, putting them into a twelve percent into a diet, and then producing over ninety percent more weight with um, a trout is a much more efficient way of doing things. Okay, got you. So, along with the marine sourced uh, fish meal. What else goes in there? What's the bulk of the feed? And can we, I'm going to double the question up just quickly so we can get to the end of this before we go into the middle bit. But um, it, what's the rest of the food that isn't marine sourced uh, or the bulk of it anyway? And um, can you rear vegetarian trout? Yeah, the rest of it is um, we have um, soya bean, um, a lot of fabia bean, soya bean. All the, the ingredients, and I think it's important we do make this um, very clear to you, is all the ingredients are certified um, under IFFOR standards. So whatever product we're using from around the world is at a very, very high level of um, particularly things like soya. That comes yeah. um, under environmentally sustainability. Um, standards for that so we're very very careful any of the other ingredients are not just thrown in they're very carefully sourced indeed and I think in the future to answer your question yeah a vegetarian trout could we and the great quest is could we ended up growing a crop with a high omega diet high omega 3 energy diet in it oils in the diet itself harvest that and include that in the food and feed that to, that to the fish the difficulty we have with that is what you put into a fish you get back. So keeping the omega-3 levels and EPA and DHA levels high yeah. in the fish is actually very difficult to do unless using a natural product. I think in the time, in future, development of food and innovation may allow us to do that. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because um, trout... Uh, perhaps less so because people know a bit less about it, which is why you're here, which is great. Um, but but also um, salmonid aquaculture. I mean, it is always trotted out the line is high in omega oils. And yet, if, if my memory serves me correctly, the vast majority of that uh, omega, you know, these really good brain foods that we all need um, to remain healthy are coming directly from the marine harvest rather, you know, they're sort of, they're not, created by the fish they're just sort of stored by it if you see what i mean 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think in the future, looking forward, we could be look at potential algal oils and insect meal as well. We are looking yeah. at that. Um, very keen to do that. In fact, one of our BTA members um, is, is, is doing, looking at doing that. The difficulty we have with that is that because it's so new, the technological side of it is very, the products are so expensive. You could be adding on another four, three or four hundred pounds a ton on food, which, which makes it, it's not viable, financially viable to do it at this stage. But we yeah. need to encourage it, innovation, and take it down that route. Yeah, in the yeah. future, could you have a vision? In very simple terms, you have a, a farm, fish farm, you grow your crop. You turn that crop into a field, into into the food, and do it that way, um, all virtually on the same area. Um, yes, the vision forward could be that. Amazing. Okay, so it's exciting developments in um, British trout farming uh, ahead down the road, and hopefully, hopefully, from my point of view, anyway, hopefully less um, less mechanical fishing intervention in important wasp waste food ecosystems for lots of marine species, um, which would be a benefit to all of us. Um, fantastic, Oliver. That's a brilliant introduction. And in fact, I think I've learned more about trout farming um, in a short period of time uh, than, than I have ever learned about anything in such a short period of time. You're a very knowledgeable and, um, uh, and passionate spokesman, clearly. Oliver, we're, we're now in the sort of central part of the, the Madam's Cast, which is a a nice fun place to be, uh, which, you know, you can make as thoughtful or as flippant as you like. And you get to change three things about the world of food. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to hear what you've got to talk about, because um, I reckon you're going to have three points that you would like to share with us that are going to be interesting. Yes. Right. The first thing, given where we are, the circumstances, everybody's, you know, the world is upside down. What is going to be the usual norm? What is going to be the norm from COVID? It's, it's a very worrying, very concerning time. Look back and learn from what happened in March. Everybody pulled together and suddenly there wasn't any food in the shops and it was difficult to source. How about an opportunity here? We've got the chance to change things. We have a great English, UK movement of growing things. Why don't we get people back doing that? Take Strip out all the imports and flying food in and go back to basics and start thinking about seasonal foods. It means that at that stage, our food security in the UK could be considerably improved. Obviously, aquaculture is going to pay a massive part of that. We could get young people growing things in, in the gardens and then learning and educating how to cook things. I think to me, that's a really big, important change that we could do now. And people, I think, would be good. It would pull communities together and look at it. The drive we've got, local pe people wanting to shop locally, local produce. This is a massive opportunity in the UK for British um, produced product to a good standard. Our standards are probably higher than anybody else's. So we need to get behind that, go into seasonal products and really drive that. The other side, which is interesting, we were on a meeting yesterday with the Environmental Agency on a drought group. And the other thing is, I've been learning extreme weather conditions. Water 
it's a big issue. It's going to be a political issue. We can't live without water. And what do we yeah. do when it rains? It just goes in, runs off and goes to sea. We need to start conserving more water because that's actually the route to everything. If we don't have water, we can't grow anything. So again, education, getting people, government incentives across the UK to build reservoirs, not massive ones, but on farms for irrigation. And then if you have irrigation, you could do seasonal cropping. That vision, I think, is, is a challenge, but it could be done and it could make the UK much more secure on food and with that reinvent people's passion for cooking local food. Brilliant. Well, that's, <laughs> there's a lot in number one to unpack, isn't there, Oliver? I mean, that's quite a lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, you won't get any arguments from me on, on more localised uh, food systems. And actually, it's really interesting that that was what we saw popping up almost straight away under lockdown was people within communities going, right, well, we need to get food and help people to look after themselves, whether they're self-isolating, whether they're stuck at home, whether they're on a low income, whether they're completely stymied by the whole thing, whatever it is. And there's been some really interesting sort of pop-up operations that have fed literally millions of people completely off the radar as far as governmental support is concerned. Um, and I think that's 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 a really positive sign for this potential viewing this as an opportunity um, rather than a rather than a, you know, a, a problem in our sort of preconceived way of running a society that sh that's there to be fixed rather than rather than grasped and taken advantage of. Um, I, I want to come back to this water thing you've raised, uh, yeah. because I, I find that that really interesting, because, you know, one of my big things that sort of trips me out a little bit um, is when people talk about um, Let's use an example, right? Let's use, um, I'm going to use a controversial one, but it's a good one. I'm going to use almond farming in uh, California, where they are irrigating a desert to grow almonds, which they're then blending and mixing with water to ship around the world as almond milk. Now, I don't get, I mean, I understand what a water footprint is, and I understand what a carbon footprint is, and I get why some people don't want to drink cow's milk, but replacing it with nuts and water from the other side of the planet that's water expensive to produce anyway, seems like it should just be internationally illegal to do that, right? Yeah, I, I, I think absolutely. I mean, I think when I'm saying water, I mean, I, I'm looking at reservoirs, preserving water, using less of it, um, and making people conscious of it. Um, if everybody used their washing machine once a week less in the UK, we wouldn't have the problems. We've, we've got very close occasionally. People probably don't realise the drought conditions. Um, certainly the chalk streams were on. The rain comes down and it takes six months for the rain to go down through the ground, through the chalk, and come back up to the springs. If we have a very dry spell um, in the summer, and then a, a dry winter, the groundwater levels are very low. People don't realise until the day that they turn on their tap and there's no actual water coming out of the tap, nobody's going to do anything about it. And I think we need to get people aware of, of this fact because water, and it goes back to my original thing, local people farm producing more in their gardens of food, etc. You need water to do that. And that's all possible um, with a great deal of government support, I believe, of, of, of um, water 
reservoirs, on farms. With that goes the, the difference that will make to the environment, small ponds, small reservoirs, maybe some big lakes um, for wildlife habitats, people enjoying themselves. And that does make a big difference as well. So there's a huge benefit to the environment, not just us needing water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. I mean, bring back bring back the wetlands for sure. I mean, I know there's a lot of people who have a lot of issues with uh, some of the ways that's being done. Um, uh, we haven't got time to dive into the beaver example, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we've done a lot of straightening of waterways over the years to prevent flooding in specific locations where we've perhaps you know chosen unwisely to build places and that's caused problems elsewhere and with sort of the whole drive of civil engineering has been to get water away from the land as fast as possible and i completely agree that perhaps that's that's the wrong way to look at it um and you're right people won't i mean water most people they might un they understand the water cycle right but they don't get necessarily what goes into getting it to their tap i mean just saving your rainwater to water the garden with in the summer months can be an incredible saving right yeah i i think they ought to have some form of government incentive if you could have demonstrate that you've got a plot you're growing your vegetables in for your seasonal food and also harvesting rainwater then maybe there should be um i don't know relief on council tax or something i don't know um, but there must be a way around it. If you look what they do in, in really dry countries, they, every drop of rain is, is preserved. And I think there's a general drive with that, but that all goes hand in hand and a vision forwards for farming. And I think, again, with that, it's the, the future of food security in the UK. We need to get back to what we were doing after the Second World War, when we were producing 75% of our own produce. If um, COVID or, or supposing you went back to World War II and you couldn't get any food imported into the UK, we probably got about four or five days worth of food and then we've got a big problem. We need to reverse that. Yeah, okay. Very interesting. Um, I mean, very difficult always. These things, we want to unpack them and explore them and bring in other experts and within the sort of one hour format, um, <laughs> long form interview, it's, it's a bit tricky, but you're, you're certainly... Um, you're certainly preaching to the converted with the overall thinking on on those those points uh, there for sure. I mean, I, you know, one thing that springs immediately to mind is that we could bin off this waste of money, high speed train system that nobody needs anymore because no one's going to London uh, <laughs> because they're all very sensibly doing jobs that can perfectly well be done without spending any carbon from home, uh, without spending any carbon, and maybe we could have bought that exceptionally expensive um, process and admit that it was a mistake and make the best of what they've done so far and use the rest of that money to build your reservoirs and educate the public and maybe install rainwater saving systems in people's houses. Yeah, I, th I think it would be. And I think the other thing, you've got many, many young people with lockdown and huge concerns for them and energy that they've got that needs to be put into something rather than just being locked down. So why not? grow things and get them interested in cooking and in very well, I'm not talking about very complicated things but very easy very easy things to grow it's amazing to grow carrots cabbages whatever you could get you know that all comes in hand to the fish farming the aquaculture you could get very some small aquaculture sites going up on on research if you could do it and again getting all that going it's it, it's all possible to do
would it okay so would it be possible for me to um uh, let okay let's here's an example it's a, a complete fantasy example i'm going to move uh later in later this year i'm moving from devon to scotland I'm very excited about it when we get there once we've settled in and sorted our lives out we're gonna plan to build a house now could i include a rainwater collection system that i could recirculate through some uh big tanks outdoors and in those tanks house a few um probably vegetarian fish to start with that i could feed on I don't know, waste food from my kitchen? Would that be a possibility? Or is that just, uh, you know, am I literally just living in fantasy land? I think there's a, there's a, there's a level of, 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 of sort of sanity with it. But I think, yeah, the answer is, if you could go down the route, if you can harvest your rainwater, you could go down a, a small hydroponics research, hydroponic system. So you're, you're growing some fish, you're feeding them. And, and with that, um, you get a, an enriched uh, water out, outflow from the pond um, or the tank they're in, and you could grow um, a crop of vegetables. Okay, it's very easy to say, quite difficult to do, but I, I feel over the next 20 years, perhaps technology will allow us to do that. I and mean, we've had an approach last week from somebody who's doing exactly what you were suggesting. They've just moved house, they've got loads of IBCs or something collecting rainwater and want to do a hydroponics farm. Well, okay. There's a lot of technical stuff that might or might not work, but in, in 20 years' time, um, the advances of science, etc., probably will allow us to do that. And that would be very interesting for young people to do um, and, and take that on as a project. Yeah, that would be quite cool, wouldn't it? Turning your own sort of bread crusts into, into fish to eat at a later date using rainwater and creating fertilizer for your garden at the same time i quite i quite i'm fascinated i'm charmed by the idea perhaps more than the practicalities yeah, yeah i mean i think they're all but i, I think it takes doesn't, doesn't you know i still feel that aquaculture um, you know the trout farming's got a massive part to play um within the the british you know food security which is an important part well, and sustainability, okay, so I'm going to, this is dangerous territory because we're going to do some fag packet calculations, okay, or oh, I probably, I probably can't say fag packet anymore. I'm going to say back of an envelope calculation. <laughs> yeah. Now, now you tell me that the chicken, uh, the chicken rearing uh, food conversion ratio is roughly 2.5 to 1. I think that was the number that you were kicking around and no one's going to, we're not going to. Um, get into trouble with the Chicken Rearers Association of the UK for this because we're just extrapolating some numbers to, to sort of give ourselves a, a rough idea of where we sit. Now, six years ago, when I wrote a book um, that required me to do the research, I discovered there were 800 million chickens a year reared uh, in, in the UK. Now, it's probably gone up from there to closer to a billion. I don't know. I haven't looked recently. So let's, 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 that'll make the, the maths easy though, right? So let's do, let's say a billion. Um, and trout, we're saying, are roughly one for one. Yes. Now, now that would be a huge saving of 1.5 to 1 if everyone that's eating chicken switched to eating trout. But here's a problem. <laughs> would, that in, would we be able to, um, to repurpose those chicken growing sites to make that possible or, or move them around? Obviously, I'm not saying they'd have to be in exactly the same place, but what do you, why, what makes chicken so popular? And I'm not sure what the tonnage of trout production is in the UK. I expect you can tell me, but um, I'm wondering how that compares to, to chicken. Okay. So, so started, start off with the production um, of, of um, 
trout in the UK and totals about 17,000 tonnes. Chickens, I, I don't know what it would be, but it would be many, 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 many thousands, hundreds of thousands of tonnes of, of, of chicken. The difference is a trout takes anywhere between um, to 500 grams, say eight, eight months, to a three kilo fish to taking two years. And a chicken you turn around in about 35 weeks. Mm. Um, and it's a very, the chicken is a very good usable, very good source, very efficient source of protein for people to use and filling the shelves. The, the difficulty you would have is producing enough trout initially at that level. Could you repurpose the sites? Well, I suppose if, if you had lots of water, etc., I, I don't think you could probably make up the, the, the sort of uh, the total tonnage that you, if you took chicken production out and tried to make it up with aquaculture, I don't think you could probably do it. Um, but certainly, I think it, it could work with, you know, it could work hand in hand, put it like that. You've still got to have your chickens around. But yes, um, we could certainly increase the amount of production, I think, without affecting the chickens. Yeah. Well, we could, uh, the only reason I ask is, uh, well, there are lots of reasons I ask, but the obvious mathematical reason that I ask is that we're always looking, or at least the idea bandied around is that we need to produce more food to feed the planet. Actually, that's not true. We already globally produce more food than we need. A lot of it's wasted and then a lot of it's fed to um, not necessarily that brilliant uh, uh, meat production systems to feed wealthy people who um, who can afford the meat. Um, and I wondered if we could tip some of that. I mean, I'm not I'm not bashing chicken farmers here. I mean, I might do later, but I'm not bashing chicken farmers right now. I'm just wondering if, you know, if those food conversion ratios are going to become more and more important to uh, the sustainability of food production systems as we go forward, then a shift from even this very efficient chicken meat production more towards uh, uh, cold-blooded animal production might might well be you know on the cards. I think I think it, it could well be. I mean, if you've got a growing population in the world that we seem to have, um, you know, it's very concerning. You've got more mouths to feed. Um, yeah, I think I think as it grows, yes, the aquaculture can go. It is fish aquaculture is a very efficient, safe way of producing a very high good quality protein for people to eat. The the challenge we're going to have at the moment, uh, one of our drivers is 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 the situation of getting people to eat more fish. We need to get them to eat instead of one portion a week. We've got to get them up to two portions a week. If we did that, that would make a huge difference. Yeah, if it's if it's the right fish, I I completely agree. Um, I would yeah. definitely <laughs> definitely. Be I mean, the right fish as far as the right fish as far as I'm concerned is is is, is trout, but uh, <laughs> inevitably, yeah. I'm biased. I'm yeah, biased okay, that okay. one. No, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay, so um, I you know I I I have various issues with. Um, with lots of high intensity salmon farming that we're not going to delve into today. But I, uh, the reason that I got in touch with you, and we will give you your chance to give us point three in just a second, but I just feel like this conversation is going quite well. Um, uh, the reason I got in touch was that I suddenly started noticing on Instagram, and I'm sorry, but I am an Instagrammer, mostly watching, I do sometimes post. Um, I was watching on Instagram and suddenly out of nowhere, British trout started popping up in my feed. 
Now I follow a few people who do a bit of fishing because I'm interested in fishing. And I, I, I think that a chalk stream is a fascinating habitat. And I love the way that, um, you know, we're very good at looking at food systems as a linear thing. And actually they're all web shaped and they're all complex and you can't just change one thing. And history is full of examples of people meddling with good intention and getting things badly wrong. But suddenly out of nowhere came this um, British trout uh, hashtag. And I saw lots of famous chefs suddenly using trout. And I think they must be these three kilo fish you've been talking about because they look like um, fairly chunky, boneless portions of trout. And I think when people see small trout in the supermarket, I mean, you you struggle to get people to buy a whole mackerel these days because they're, they're worried about the bones, let alone a whole trout, which could be an even more sort of complex thing because of the typical bone structure of, of trout. Um, it, it, <laughs> I, I just, I, I'm, I'm, really interested to know how we get people you know to eat more trout and and how you're finding that is going and, and where that marketing campaign just came from well thank you yeah and we, we've got um yes it is driven by the um british trout association we've got an amazingly good pr company and we came up with the, with the with the um really on the back of the problems and the worries of covid and wanting to drive things because obviously when covid hit all the markets stopped so we had to reinvent. We had to make people and encourage people to eat trout. And up came shout out for British trout. Um, and the support we've had has just been incredible. I, I mean, every day I go on there and it lifts me as a farmer because I see these in chefs who are doing it off their own back. I mean, they, they get that shout out for British trout sticker or, 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 or sign and they can be seen with that. And the support we've got is incredible. It is a British product. It's all produced in the UK to incredibly high standards. And I think that's really important. It's the standards we produce it to are a second of world leading, um, which is, you know, to me, we take tremendous pride as an organization, but also as a farmer with the product that we're producing. Yes, we, we've got portion trout. We, we still do that. We have portion trout fillets, which are small ones. And there is a general trend towards the larger trout, which is sort of three, two to three kilo and fillets with that and steaks. And it's a very versatile product and very simple. And in fact, one of the chefs said to us the other day, well, the product you're producing is so good, we have to do very little to it, which is a real, you know, that, that sums it up really well. It's really exciting. Yeah. And the yeah, help and the support we've got from the, the public and the, the general the chefs, um, the catering community as well, just is incredible. We need it, but it's it's wonderful. It's much appreciated. Excellent. Okay. Um, so if we are out uh, buying trout, we need to look for British trout. Um, that's, a, that's a good tip. Now, Oliver, back to the central cause of the Madam's Cast. I'm going to give you one more thing you can change about the world of food, because I feel like we've got a lot uh, in point one, and I've moved water out of it into point two. So I want you to give me one more thing, and then we're going to have a, a very light-hearted chat about um, a food book and a drink that you're allowed on your own desert island. And then yeah, okay, you... so what, what else would I want to change about food? I think what I would love to change about food is is making sure that getting people into their own comfort zone so that they're comfortable with cooking food. Um, we've run up against this with trout. You know, people like it, but they don't know how to cook it. Um, everybody's got so used to a packet, opening it. Yeah, I can understand it. It's, you know, back home, kids are back, uh, 
want to get a, in, in basic terms, a lump of protein, put it in the microwave, done it's done in a few minutes, and, and there's your 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 supper, because everybody's busy. But actually, maybe with the world that we're now living in, maybe the speed of things will slow down. And the next generation, I would love to get them more educated on appreciate, well, not appreciating, but understanding the basic ingredients and how to cook food. Because as a farmer, and I'm, I'm sure you, as, from, from your background of life, if we don't educate the young people on how and get them into their comfort zone understanding food and how to cook it, we're never going to change thing anyway because all they want is a lump of protein in the packet. There'll be no real passion behind it. So that's the big thing I would like to change. I know it's a bit bizarre, but I, I think the next generation coming through, they're our future. They're our future customers wanting to buy the food, and we have to educate them and help them and get them comfortable with using seasonal foods. Yeah, absolutely. It's no good changing agriculture if no one wants to, uh, if, and the way that food's imported, if, if no one knows what to do with the stuff that they have to eat when it is in season. Yeah. And I, the I, other thing, Tim, I think... You mentioned earlier, and I think it's a incredibly important point: food wastage. You know, they buy people buy food, and it's got a sell-by date, and it goes. Well, don't necessarily buy so much food. Look at the tons and tons of food that was being wasted with COVID, and just dumped because people were buying, panic buying, and then it was all getting out of date and was wasted. I mean, that is crazy. That situation. Okay, we're all learning from it, but taking a positive from the journey we've all been through for the last six months. Um, yeah, let's get the young, all, all generations going, get them simple, basic, comfortable food and get them going on that. Yeah, uh, yeah. well, you're not going to get any argument from me about getting people to spend a bit longer in their kitchen. Um, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a matter very that's, close that's, to my heart. As a, as a, as a farmer, we, we arable farm at home and we do some sheep as well. And, and you know, we're producing protein. We get great pride in it as, as British farmers. And I think that we need to, to get that and, and persuade people and show them how good British product is as well. Don't import it. Mm, very good. Very good. Great point to, to come to the end of that, that yeah. part of the show on. I mean, Oliver, uh, this happens a lot, but <clears throat> uh, I, I meet people uh, from making the podcast and I have fantastic conversations with them and I end up with more questions uh, that I want to ask than I could possibly ask in a lifetime and and that's certainly the case here you 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 know you're very interesting incredibly well informed on, on what you're talking about and um, and you've got some great points to make so thanks for bringing them to the madam's cast and sharing them with with the audience that's much 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 appreciated absolute pleasure um we have a little bit of fun at the end of the madam's cast where you get to choose a book and a drink that you might sort of, it's, it has to be a food-related book, normally a recipe book, but I'm not going to insist on that. You can have a food-related book of some sort and a drink uh, that you'd like to drink while you're perusing said food book. And then if you want to, you can nominate somebody to come on the Madam's Cast. They can be alive or dead, real or fictitious. They can come on or not come on. That's up to them. But you, you are allowed to nominate someone for a future episode if you'd like to. So should we start with your book? Okay, my book. Okay, so I'm stuck on a desert island, um, and I, I'm a bit worried about this one, but um, on the basis that there are, the environment is okay and there are still still fish swimming in the sea, I would probably be having to fish, because I love fishing anyway. That's sort of one of the things I do, I'm afraid. But um, I think I'd probably like to get a fish uh, book 
recipe book. And I think Nathan Outlaw's Fish Kitchen, is he's passionate about his fish, great supporter. And I think his book is very good indeed. And it would give me many ways. I mean, I think there are about 70 or 80 recipes in there. Well, I could sort of reinvent them. And over time on my desert island, I could probably get to a few hundred recipes. Um, so that's the book I, I think I would like to have. Fair enough. That sounds like a good one. And I don't think there's anything bad about being a fisherman, by the way. Let's let's just very briefly explore that. That I, I'm, I'm involved. I've been fishing. I've done a bit of shooting. I've done a bit of hunting. And the one thing that people always misunderstand about that from the outside, and there are good reasons for some of that misunderstanding, is that people who interact with their food by fishing for it or hunting it, and very often fish are released again anyway, but it's that connection people are looking for. These, you know, generally speaking, those people have a, a greater respect and understanding for the environment from which their food comes from uh, than some people who tarnish them with a brush that perhaps is unnecessary. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think it is a difficult balance, a different balance. But I think, again, it goes back to educating people. We had a massive natural food source. And in there you have fish swimming in the rivers. Um, reality is you can have a wonderful time catching them. You can take the one or two fish home that you, you catch and produce the most amazing food. So again, I think that is, that's important. The same with the shooting. Um, sort of walked about days and, and having fun, um, just walking along and, and, and shooting a, a partridge or a pheasant, wild partridge or a pheasant when they get up and, and taking that home and cooking it is really good. And again, getting people doing that and a passion behind it, it gets you out in the countryside, it makes you interested in what's going on in the world um, and not just buying a lump of protein in a packet. So again, I think there's a massive opportunity here to get people going, and certainly the fishing. Um, one thing on my desert island, am I allowed to take a fishing rod so I can catch a fish to cook? Yeah, yeah, your your desert island, in fact, is a kind of um, it's it's allowed to be fabricated by you. So it might it might even be your garden, for example. But what I'm saying is you're only allowed limited resource in terms of your reading material and what you're going to drink. So what are you going to drink while you're well, tackling up? I, I'm, I'm a great believer, I'm afraid, of supporting um, British. We have some amazing um, good vineyards in the UK. It's, they produce just stunning um, product and in fact you know if you look at the white cliffs of dover opposite that they're producing that in france and the same soil structure so there should be an easy way um i'm gonna pick really i think uh, there's an amazing um line of wines in, in dorset near blanford and they produce the most amazing sparkling wine and i think that or, or one of their still white wines um i would select from them i think that's that's what i would take definitely and some water yeah. obviously <laughs> yes yeah G give me the name of the vineyard in dorset again sorry oh that's justin that's um langham wines l-a-n-g-h-a-m wines um then they are blanford sort of dorchester way very successful and produce the most amazing product Brilliant. Um, I'm going to try that. That sounds fantastic. I'm yeah, surprised I've never, never heard of them, but, but I have. That, that, uh, that, what I'm doing is making it UK-based. I, I, yeah, there's some amazing French wines. and oh, We went over to France two or three years ago with the family and had the most amazing wine tasting, but the particular place of 
Yorkshire couple had armed set of wine a vineyard up there, and it was the best wine I think I've ever had in my life. But I want to go British on this, definitely. Good for you. Good for you. Nothing wrong with that. Now, um, who would you nominate to come and, <laughs> and be grilled on the Masters? I'm torn between a rock and a hard place, if I'm honest. <laughs> lots of people, many people, but actually, I've thought of all sorts of people. But I thought, well, okay, younger generation, um, cooking, farming, um, and really somebody who gets it. Okay, I, it's, it's my family. I have to be clear about that. My daughter Beatrice um, um, Atkinson, they farm down near Dorchester. They have a, a big farm and they're some arable, mixed sheep, cows. Um, they do pigs and all sorts of things there. And my daughter set up a, a, a catering business many years ago. And obviously COVID has, 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 has damaged that considerably. Uh, but, but that's where we are. You've got to move on. And she's passionate about her cooking. She does cooking lessons for people, gets young when she was allowed to, young people in for school holidays and kids in, doing all sorts of baking and cooking. And she's passionate about what they do. They grow a lot of their own products. And within Dorset and Hampshire um, and Wiltshire, there's a huge move of local people producing local things. And certainly uh, Beatrice has, has, has been very supportive um, in, in Dorset and getting an awful lot of people. When COVID hit, she got a group of people together. And it's incredible. Uh, farmers and farm shops, it's amazing what they've done. Uh, so I'd like to nominate her and give her a chance. And also it gives you a chance of a young person looking how you could get uh, following on my theme, the next generation cooking and making it interesting and fun. And they grow their own oh. food. Sounds like an ideal guest for the Madam's cast. You'll have to you'll have to introduce me to her and then hopefully we can get her on at some point in the not too distant to, to share her thoughts and views. That'd be Absolutely. Great. <laughs> right. Brilliant. Oliver, it's been so great talking to you. Just before I, I wrap up entirely, um, can you let us know how we find out more about British Trout? What sort of, um, uh, you know, is there a website? Is there a Yeah, a if, you, if you go on feed? to the British Trout website, so just put in uh, British Trout, www.britishtrout.co.uk, you'll get us on there. Um, our contact details and emails are on there. Um and there's a phone number. And if anybody's listening and wants to know about trout, yeah, please do contact us. The, the contact emails are there, as I say, and phone numbers. And I would, if people want to know, send in emails, ring up, and I would be happy always to go and see somebody, talk to them, and encourage them. Very much so. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Oliver, huge thanks for coming on. Um, and... Uh, I hope you've enjoyed being a guest on the Madam's Cast. It's been an absolute privilege to be there and, and talk to somebody yourself who's passionate about British and British products and understands the countryside as well, which is um, it's good. Excellent. Brilliant. Um, thanks, Oliver. Have a, have a brilliant rest of your day. And I look forward to following British Trout and seeing what happens with it and all the developments in the, in the industry uh, going forward. Um, have a great day. Well, thank you for the opportunity of putting our case forward. Thank you. You're very welcome, Oliver. Cheerio. Oh, bye. Cheers, bye.